Welcome to Views from the Porch, a podcast where we explore what it looks like to survive and thrive in your young adult years. Each week, we talk about the biggest challenges facing young adults today and how to overcome them from God's Word based on our weekly experience in leading thousands of young adults at the porch. For more info on The Porch, visit theporch.live. Thank you for joining. What's up, guys? This is David. We are back with another episode of Views from the Porch. I'm joined with J.D. Rogers. What's up? And today, you're going to hear a really special podcast, uh, a unique thing. We, we don't do a lot, but we have a friend who's joining us named Vodi Bakum. Vodi is a pastor. He runs a seminary in Zambia. He grew up in, uh, you're going to hear his story, LA, has nine kids, is just an incredible teacher of God's word, is an Oxford grad, a, uh, the, the credentials I could go on and on, but has a really important message, particularly in this time as it relates to social justice, the church, the ways that we should be engaging around uh, culture, particularly as it relates to justice, being advocates for truth and uh, racial um, harmony together and unity as the body of Christ. So- Yeah, and David, can I just say like, if you're anything like me, uh, I'm, I'm already listening and like, maybe like, ah, maybe this podcast isn't for me, I'll go back to a dating podcast and it, these conversations can be super intimidating. And I just want to say, as a 27-year-old, uh, there's a lot of phrases, there's a lot of words that you might not understand, and that's okay. I would highly encourage you, if you're listening, if you can, uh, to take out your phone, take out a paper and pen, write down anything uh, that you don't understand. You can email us or you can just do, do some research. I think it's totally worth it. And I'm excited for the conversation. And you may need to go back and listen slower. I always listen to podcasts 1.5 or 2 speed. Yeah. This is one you're going to want to listen at 1.0. Yeah. And you may even rewind, but really, really important, mm-hmm. really, really uh, good conversation we're about to have. So, so hope you enjoyed it. If you have questions, uh, we can't wait to hear. Like you said, email us at info@theporch.live. Vody, welcome, man. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you guys. Come been on. looking forward to this. I love it. Well, hey, I thought we'd start just because a lot of our audience, some of them are, are freaking out right now that you're talking with us and others don't have as much familiarity with you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you're over in Zambia. Can you just give us a little bit of your story of grace, like a high level on, I know you're from LA, you were in Houston. <laughs> I'm originally from Houston. Yeah. So that's where I first got, I heard of you and got to uh, see your teachings. And and so what's high level Vody Bauckham's story and, you know, 60 seconds or take as long as you want. Yeah. Okay. So high level Vody Bauckham story. I was born in, in Los Angeles and, you know, drug infested, gang infested South Central LA, born to a single teenage Buddhist mother. Wow. Uh, never heard the gospel until my first year at university and um, came to faith then uh, in my first year in university. And God got a hold of my life and turned it upside down. Um, I met and married my wife my sophomore year. Um, I, I met her January 21st, 1989. We got married June 30th, 1989. Yeah, you did. And then <laughs> 10 months later. Yeah, man. That's the dream. 10 months later, our, our first first child was born. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't wait for anything, man. Um, <laughs> and so Bridget and I have been married since 89, uh, 31 years. We have nine children ranging from age 30 down to age seven. Um, wow. I, I started preaching my junior year in, in college and just, uh, you know, I was playing football at Rice University. Hmm. And so when you're a football player and, you know, thinking about a career in the NFL, um, people invite you to preach at a lot of different types of events, but of course I didn't have, um, I, I didn't know a lot and have a lot. So I transferred my senior year to Houston Baptist university, um, so that I could actually learn what I was talking about. Immediately my phone stopped ringing. Nobody wanted me to come talk anymore because <laughs> I wasn't, you know, a famous football player anymore. It was the greatest thing that could have happened to me. Wow. Um, I got to go into the wilderness and have my ego beat down mm-hmm. for several years, um, you know, before starting itinerant ministry and, um, you know, so that, that's kind of in a nutshell, uh, who I am, where I am, uh, in 2006, I, I spent most of my life working in churches as a minister of missions evangelism. Um, and then was a church planter, planted the church there in Houston. And in 2006 had an opportunity to go and preach at an event in Lusaka, Zambia. And um, when I came back, my wife asked me how the trip was. I was there for two weeks. And all I could tell her was, I think I want to be buried there. Um, wow. The, the, 
it was as though I, I just saw the hand of God and so many of the things that he had given me in terms of gifts, talents, abilities, and desires that just fit so well with what was happening in, in, in Lusaka. And anyway, you know, that's 2006, eight years later, he calls my wife. Um, so 2014, we decided to come to Zambia in August of 2014, August of 2015, we're on the ground. So we've been here for five years, uh, helping you start the African Christian University, which is a uh, classical Christian, liberal arts, biblical worldview university, um, offering degrees in business, education, um, uh, agriculture, uh, fine arts and theology, wow. and now offering two uh, graduate degrees in theology through our school of divinity. Man. So I'm, I'm the, I'm the, the, um, Dean of the School of Divinity and the chair of the Department of Theology here they see you. Are you also uh, teaching and preaching at a church there? Yeah, so I'm 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 doing some teaching. I I do probably 10 Sundays a year at our church. Um actually now helping with a church plant. Um I was at a, another church called Kobwada Baptist Church here in Lusaka, uh pastored by a dear friend of mine, uh, Conrad Mbewe. And um, his son is now planting a church in another part of Lusaka. So I've left to go help his son um, to, to do that. And um, so I, I'm, I'm preaching there 10 Sundays a year and then just trying to be a, a sounding board and a mentor and a support for mm. a young pastor planting a church. Come on, mm. man. If you have not heard Vody teach go to youtube or just type it into the i mean this brother can preach anyways we're going to talk about uh social justice which is taking a, a little bit of a, a turn on that but there's so many topics i just want our audience to make sure they know go listen to anything that uh Vody has put out there i'm sure there's things that you would be like well don't listen to that one but <laughs> everything that i've come across i've been so encouraged and just such a great teacher of, of the word of god mm -hmm. but particular, we're doing a, um, so in Views from the Porch, we have a politically correct subcategory where we're just walking through a biblical perspective on some key issues in the arena of society and culture and politics. And this is one of yeah. those. And this one on social justice, which um, has some connections to other terms that we'll kind of flesh out. But I just wanted to yeah. set up and ask that term social justice increasingly has been thrown out. And in, in the Christian or in the church, there is uh, oftentimes some differing understandings of even what that means. In other words, it's yeah. not—it's not other. Uh, it's not synonymous, or some people think it's synonymous with biblical justice, but they don't right. say biblical justice. They say social justice, which seems to have different implications. Or I just want to throw that out there and say, what's the problem with social justice? What even do people mean uh, when they throw that out in culture? And why is it dangerous for Christians yeah. to embrace that term, mm -hmm. to think in line with that worldview, and just start right there? Well, the term social justice, and this is the problem, uh, it's a problem with a lot of stuff going on today. We're using words that have had meanings for a long time. And for most people, um, they're not using them correctly. I, I think about the Princess Bride and, and Diego Montoya's famous quote, you keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and, and social justice is one of those words. Social justice is redistributive justice. So social justice is about outcomes. It's about redistributing um, privileges and, um, and, 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 and incomes and in reallocating resources so that they are allocated um, equitably. Uh, that's what social justice means. It's the it's completely different than biblical justice. Biblical justice is about everybody being treated equally under the law, and particularly under God's law. Uh, social justice is about everybody having equal outcomes as it relates to the distribution of privileges and 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 power and resources. Um, and so, social justice is actually incompatible with biblical justice in that way. In that it, it is aimed at leveling the playing field or leveling the outcome at whatever cost, right? Yeah, not leveling the playing field because leveling the playing field, you still don't necessarily get, well, not necessarily. With a level playing field, you don't get equal outcomes. 
um, you know, the, the Los Angeles Lakers just won the NBA championship, right? Mm-hmm. They won on a level playing field, but on a level playing field, they had more talent and more experience and more whatever. So they had more success. So social justice is not about leveling the playing field. Social justice is about the equitable outcomes. So it would be unjust, you know, that the, that the Lakers had a dynasty that the Bulls had a dynasty, that the Celtics had a dynasty, that would have been inherently unjust because you didn't have a different champion every year and everybody with an equal chance to win at the beginning of every year because, you know, Magic's Lakers and, you know, um, you know, Bird's Celtics and Jordan's Bulls uh, always had an advantage before the season even started. So the, the, the idea of a level playing field it equates more with biblical justice, but not with social justice. Yep, that's good. Mm. So um, as it relates to this issue, there's uh, something connected to it that I think you would, I think others would say, I don't know if you would say, are uh, very well-versed and, and an expert, if you will, on it, and that you've studied, and that is critical theory, which has some tentacles connected to social justice, and again, because we work with young adults, uh, this generation yeah. is very, they're out in the streets. Movements are the kind of the thing of the day, mm-hmm. whether it's Black Lives Matter right. or right. Uh, every day there's a new protest and a new march. And as Christians, we want to be against oppression and we want to be for equality and we want to fight for yeah. um, all of those issues. But there's something else going on in culture that I've yes. heard you described as critical theory or others yes. have as well. And you've had a long history in that, um, going back and studying that, I, I believe I've heard you say before, for the last 20 years and did work yeah, at Oxford. Yeah, almost 20 years. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost 20 years of dealing with these same kinds of, of, uh, of ideas. And, um, you know, I, I, the way I put it is, I've been standing on this same wall for a long time, watching an enemy advance and screaming to people, that this enemy is advancing and now this enemy is inside the gate yeah. um, mm. and and postmodernism and critical theory um, and now critical race theory these are all um, like you said these tentacles of these same movements and so in order to understand it um, you know a history lesson is really the only way everybody knows for example you know Karl Marx and a lot of people know, you know, Marxism and communism and, you know, these sort of economic theories. But what they don't understand is Marx is actually um, one of the fathers of the science of sociology. Um, sociology as a science, we've only understood it since really the 19th century is when we started talking about it as, as, as a science. And Marx and Weber and Durkheim, these are the three, you know, these are the big three in the development of the science of sociology. And Marx... You know, Marx's ideas, his economic ideas, are really, you know, around the idea that, that, that there is a single economic pie, right? And everybody's fighting for that same economic pie. And you have the bourgeoisie and the proletariat or the haves and the have-nots, right? The people who control the means of, the, of production and the people who don't. And that, the, that, that, that all of life is this struggle for resources, and it was called conflict theory, right? And so he reduced everything down to this struggle for limited resources. Um, and so, you know, let's let's move forward. And Marxism is about, you know, the the, the workers of the world uniting and overthrowing um, capitalist societies because capitalism is inherently evil because capitalism is meant to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. And so there's going to be this revolution, this Marxist revolution. Well, there's the Bolshevik revolution, you know, in the early 20th century, but, but that's it. Um, and, and that doesn't take hold. And so Marxism seems to sort of be fizzling out. And there's a couple of guys, very important people in history, who are committed Marxists, but they try to rethink and reshape Marxism and explain why Marxism didn't take over like it should have and why capitalism didn't collapse. And one of them is an individual, another one is a group. One is an individual not by the name of Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci is an Italian Marxist. And Gramsci comes up with this idea called hegemony. And, and, and I'll explain that in a minute, but 
Gramsci's looking at this thing and he's saying, no, 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 the way people are being kept down is not necessarily by capitalism, but they're being held down by cultural hegemony, which is the ideology that shapes and dominates the culture. Okay. Hey, real quick for anybody who's listening, hegemony is basically a big term that means it's the ruling class. So it's a way of seeing the world where there's the oppressing group and they're doing everything they can to stay in power. So to Vody's point, the white Christian male, those are the hegemony or the power group or the oppressors, if you will. But just quick for anybody who isn't familiar, because that's an important term, just as we keep talking. So the best way that I can think of to describe it is this. When little kids are playing a game, um, when they make up games, my kids, you know, make up games all the time. We got seven still at home. And when they make up games, you know, you'll have the kids to make up a game. And all of a sudden there's one kid who, because of his attributes, starts dominating the game. So another kid will say, no, 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 no. How about we have this rule? Or how about we have that rule? And what I've noticed is whichever kid is making up the rules of the game, he's the one who ends up dominating the game, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is what Gramsci was talking about with hegemony. He's saying that the ideology that dominates a culture, the, the hegemony, the rules of the culture are created by a ruling class and they're designed to keep them in power and to keep other people oppressed. And so the idea, you know, for is oppressor oppressed. Okay. Coming from Marx, everything is about those who dominate and who have, and those who don't have now Gramsci oppressor oppressed. Now there's some other guys who are working on these things at the same time. And they're in Frankfurt, Germany. And they're known as the the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School is the one who creates critical theory. Critical theory really comes out of Marx's uh, uh, conflict theory with Gramsci's idea of hegemony. And critical theory is, again, dividing everything into oppressor oppressed, right? Now, believers are sort of attracted to this because the Apostle Paul tells us, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? principalities, powers, and rulers in heavenly places. And so it's kind of like we believe in a hegemony too, but here's where it differs. For these guys, the hegemony is not spiritual power, right? Because there's no such thing. Marxism is naturalistic and materialistic and atheistic. There is no God who establishes right or wrong. And right or wrong is only determined by who's ever in power. So for these guys, Whoever has the power, we don't care where the ideology came from. It is inherently oppressive. So now the Frankfurt School there in Frankfurt, Germany, World War II comes, they have to leave Germany and they end up in New York, right? Columbia University. And these guys end up being the mentors for a lot of the radicals of the 60s, like Angela Davis and the Black Panther Party and the Weather Underground. So a lot of these groups are radical Marxist groups. Um, who are also influenced by, um, you know, critical theory and Frankfurt School thinking as well. Now, that fails again. So eventually what happens is these guys sort of go underground and they go into really universities and schools of education, political sciences, and then they invent what's called the grievance studies. African-American studies, queer studies, women's studies, whiteness studies, Chicano studies, anything with studies on the end of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, the ideologies of critical theory really morph. And so you get critical race theory, you get intersectionality, you get queer theory, all of these things. You get standpoint epistemology coming out of feminist you know, studies and everything. But all of these things go back to critical theory, they go back to Gramsci, and they go back to Marx. Um, And so now let's move forward. You hear a lot of oppressor oppressed language coming from critical theory, but for critical theory, who's the hegemony? Who are the people in the United States who created the rules to the game specifically to dominate everyone else and see to it that they continue to win? For them, it is white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, Christian. That's the hegemony. And so Christians need to know that That, in the social justice worldview, that's the oppressor. And And in the social justice worldview and in all of these grievance studies, Christianity is part of the oppressive hegemony 
that has to be overturned and overthrown. Mm. You see, this is why you don't get reform the police, you get defund the police. See, because in critical theory, the police enforce the hegemony on behalf of the oppressor. You don't reform the oppressor, you overthrow the oppressor. So it's just like Marx, right? Workers of the World Unite. It's still revolutionary, but it's a different kind of revolution that comes from a different place, starts at a different starting place. So Christians are hearing things like whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, all these things being redefined, white equilibrium, white fragility, all these things being redefined by people who are committed to critical theory and using these terms in order to describe the hegemony that has to be overthrown. So language has meaning, words have meaning. These people have a worldview and they are communicating by, I love the term, critical social justice, right? So critical social justice, for example, the, the problem is the way they define injustice. So everybody's talking about racial justice and racial injustice. Well, what does that mean? Well, if justice is about distributing things equitably, anytime you see inequity. So for example, if you see inequity in education, in housing, in incarceration, in incomes, in anything, the assumption from critical theory and critical race theory is that the only cause is racism. It is systemic racism and structural racism. You see, that's why we talk about terms like systemic and structural, because we're talking from critical theory, which always use things from oppressor-oppressed terminology. So if people of color have less of X, it is because the hegemony has established things in such a way that the oppressor, white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied Christian, has rigged the game so that they're the ones who get the benefits and other people don't have access to them. So what we have to do is we have to, we have to make these outcomes equitable. And the only way to really do that is to overthrow the hegemony, which is overthrow white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, Christian. And there's several more of those as well, like native-born privilege and, you know, all these things. So when you hear privilege, right, um, there's white privilege, there's male privilege. In fact, uh, when Peggy McIntosh wrote her, her, her famous paper in 1989, you know, uh, white privilege, unpacking the invisible knapsack, she started from the platform of male privilege and equated white privilege with male privilege in order for people to understand what white privilege was, right? So there's white privilege, there's male privilege, there's, there's heterosexual privilege, there's cisgendered privilege, there's able-bodied privilege, and there's Christian privilege. And so in the literature, um, there is Christian privilege and Christian hegemony um, in the literature of mm. social justice. So one of the books that's used to teach uh, educators, for example, to train teachers in universities is a book called Teaching for Social Justice and Diversity, right? And in this book, they have an entire section on Christian privilege, Christian hegemony, what it is, why it needs to be dismantled, and how it needs to be dismantled. Man. Why? So uh, let's go back to a term you just threw out there, which is on white privilege. And a lot of this stuff, here, here's the vantage point that I have. You and I have mutual friends where um, they are using this terminology or this, this line of thinking is beginning to creep into the church. So that's a high level. It's a great explanation yeah. of, of how society and culture and, um, yep. and the ramifications of how this is playing out, we don't even have time to go into because everything you just described is why people uh, look at black police officers and they want to defund, you know, we live in Dallas where 52% of the Dallas PD, uh, the DPD or Dallas Police Department is Latino, or, or black, I think maybe by higher than that. And people want to defund yeah. uh, black police officers underneath the name of yes. racial justice, which is, is crazy. We don't yes. even have time to go into. But all that line of thinking where I get concerned is it's coming into the church and there's pastors and friends that are using terms like white privilege and you need to check your privilege or you'll never yes. understand. And, um, and to your point, 
even engaging in conversations. I had one uh, a couple weeks ago with a friend, and uh, she was bringing up the disparities in the um, in uh, delivering children and babies. That black women are four times as likely to die in childbirth. And yeah. in trying to talk through that, I pointed out that it may not be racism directly. It may not be that there's a, a doctor who just decides, you know what, I don't care about the life of this child because it's it's a black child, though that certainly could be the case, and that's horrific and terrible and all that. It could be that there's a higher uh, mortality rate in, in giving birth. I don't know the, the term I'm looking for. Because of other reasons, lack of uh, health care or a higher diabetes rates or something other than just racism behind it. And in bringing even that suggestion up, yeah. she said, that's your, your white privilege is connected to even facts. So I think sometimes it can be right. hard as a pastor. So, yeah. Well, because, because here's the thing. When, in, in whiteness studies, you, you have to understand that according to whiteness studies, one of the aspects of the hegemony is the scientific method. That's one of the things that white people have put in place in order to oppress non-white people. And so we ignore what are called other ways of knowing that are outside of the scientific method. I kid you not. It's crazy. This is in the literature. And so what's happening is Robin D'Angelo, who's now being, you know, quoted and talked about and taught, even if not by name, but her concept of white fragility, um, that's what you're running up against. So D'Angelo's saying that, you know, she's making these assumptions about hegemony, right? America's built on racism, and it has to be built on racism. We got to go to 1619, not 1776, because if we're built on 1776, then we're built on liberty and not racism, and, and the hegemony argument doesn't work. So you have to go back to 1619 and say that it's built on slavery because that fits with the hegemony model. And so we created whiteness specifically in order to oppress people who are not white, and white privilege is created specifically in order to maintain that hegemony and white supremacy is anything that's used to maintain, uh, you know, that, he that hegemony uh, for white people. White fragility means that when you're called on it, you're not willing or able to see it or deal with it. So you find ways to get around dealing with it and anything that you do is evidence of your white fragility. So it it's like a Kafka trap. You're, you're, you're guilty and even when you say you're not guilty, that's further evidence of your guilt. You know, there's no way to have a conversation like that. But that's the point. You're not supposed to have a conversation. By the way, D'Angelo also has another phrase. It's called aversive racism. So you have, you know, personal racism, systemic racism, institutional racism, all different kinds of racism. But one of them is aversive racism. And aversive racism, one of the ways that you commit aversive racism is by ascribing inequities to something other than racism. So what you just did when you said there could be other causes, D'Angelo's got a word for that in white fragility, and it's called aversive racism. And so you've got people who, you know, you've got these reading lists coming out from, from, from reputable Christian ministries and reputable Christian, you know, uh, online magazines and websites or whatever, and they're having these reading lists for, for anti-racism. And, and one of the things on that reading list is D'Angelo's white fragility, which is grossly unbiblical and rooted and grounded in critical theory and, and neo-Marxism. And, and so, wow. yeah, we're having a hard time having conversations with each other. So I've heard you say before, this line of thinking is so poisonous to the church, to Christianity, and that it undermines our message, the gospel, it, um, it undermines uh, our unity clearly, but why do you say it is so poisonous to our message? Because it's deadly. There's a couple of reasons. The gospel, what is the gospel, right? The gospel is man is fallen, not whiteness is fallen. Man is fallen. Man is sinful. People have mistreated one another since the beginning. Right. Um, you know, yeah. the first murder happens with Cain and Abel. OK, so man is fallen and man has a sin problem. The gospel is that Christ died for sin once for all the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us back to God, that God has provided an answer for our sin problem. 
But according to anti-racism, there is no answer for your sin problem. The original sin in anti-racism, the original sin is racism. So white people are guilty of the original sin, but black people are not. The mm-hmm. answer to racism, according to the anti-racist philosophy, is doing the work of anti-racism, which by definition never ends because racism is always going to be with us. So you can never be truly saved from the original sin of racism. That is anathema. That is an affront to the gospel. The other thing is you got people saying things like there is no reconciliation without justice. Are you kidding me? Number one, we can't achieve justice. Number two, Christ achieved justice on the cross. And he also achieved reconciliation on the cross, according to Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 and following. Mm -hmm. So this is this is anathema. This is this is absolute heterodoxy. It is heresy when people say these kinds of things. And it absolutely undermines our, our oneness in Christ and our oneness according to the gospel. It says that my white brethren have a sin that is so grievous and so ingrained that the blood of Jesus doesn't deliver them from it mm-hmm. and that they need black voices in order to even be able to see it, which is what I like to call ethnic Gnosticism. This idea that people, because of their ethnicity, by the way, this goes all the way back to Mar- to Marx and to Hegel, the idea that the oppressor, by virtue of his oppression, has access to knowledge that the oppressor doesn't have access to. That's why we need to center black voices. Mm-hmm. That, that, see, the, even that, that, that comes from critical social justice terminology, right? Centering black voices. So we need to hear the voices of our minority brethren. So many people after the George Floyd case, they weren't saying that they went back to the scriptures and, and understood the Bible better. No, 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 no. They listened to the voices of their black brothers and sisters and heard the stories of their pain. And that's what awakened them, not the Bible, Hmm. not the spirit of God, Hmm. but stories of people's oppression. So what we're being told is not that we need to read and interpret the Bible correctly, but that we need to listen to the stories of people who have access and insight that we don't have access to, by the way. If a black person does not believe this like I don't, that's because I have internalized racism. And therefore, I'm working on behalf of the hegemony and I'm too ignorant to know it. So you don't count. I mean, this I don't count. Yeah. Which is incredibly racist. Right. All black people think (laughs) alike. Right. Yeah. Um, And, you know, so anyway, don't even. So let me ask you this, because if I was to say I'd love to know your thoughts and and are you going to forget your question on moving forward uh, and just as the church and being being a role of bringing unity, because, Vody, if I was to say everything that you just said, it would be totally disregarded by Christians of, hey, that's your white privilege. You don't have the right to say that kind of thing. But Vody, because it's it's black, you can say that and you can get away with it. No, no. Actually, actually, I can't get away with it either. What they do is they malign and marginalize me. I hear from people all the time who are talking about how, you know, I'm I'm promoting oppression. And, um, you know, I've got I've got people who write me things and say, you know, I must not really be black or I must not. I must have grown up (laughs) with privilege or I must have, you know, all this sort of stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, because it just it's just unthinkable. Um, we saw it in we saw it in Kentucky. We saw it in Kentucky where a black attorney general lays out the the evidence in the Breonna Taylor case, and, and people are saying things like he might be skin folk, but he's not kin folk. Oh, in other mm. words, he's not legitimately black. How do we know this? We know this because the outcome wasn't what we think that it ought to be in terms of an oppressor oppressed mentality. You see, in the oppressor oppressed mentality, the evidence doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is this happened to a black person. Therefore, by definition, it's de facto evidence of racism, you see. And so back to your question, what do we do? We have to call this stuff out. We have to go to war with critical theory. We have to go to war with critical social justice. We have to call this stuff out. We have to tell that story. We have to demonstrate to people that this is another gospel and we have to anathematize this other gospel. Yeah. So growing up, I'd love to know, because you called it 20 years in advance, you were standing on the wall. Um, I'd be intrigued to know what you would think, where this is going, because it seems like it's getting worse. Like when I was growing up, I grew up in a mixed uh, race environment. My first 
um, you know, girl I had a crush on at school was black. All of my heroes were black in terms of like Michael Jordan. And I'm just saying as a kid growing up, not right or wrong. Yeah. Uh, it seems like the racial issue uh, is more aggravated and getting worse and getting worse and getting yeah. more divided. And, and none of me sharing that is, by the way, trying to say that racism doesn't exist or hasn't existed or uh, isn't a problem of the past or, or isn't a and, sin. And, and let me just tell you, let me, let me just stop you right there. You just did that because these people are in your head. I, and I, I know totally we all agree. Do I totally agree. We all do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what happens is, you know, we, the, so, all right, I wasn't even going to get into all this. Come on, <laughs> come so, on. So the class of 89, right? The class of 89. In 1989, there was the first meeting. Of, so the founder of critical race theory uh, is, is a professor named Derek Bell. He was a Harvard Law professor. In 1989, they have their first meeting. They have their meeting in Wisconsin at the University of Wisconsin. And so they really established critical race theory um, as a discipline in 1989. He had a protege by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw's paper that really introduced intersectionality came out in 1989. Uh, Peggy McIntosh, her book, her, her paper on white privilege, um, which by the way, doesn't have a single footnote in it. Um, it would flunk any master's level uh, course. Um, wow. But anyway, her paper came out in 1989. Two other Harvard professors, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Matson, they published a book in 1989 called After the Ball. How America Will Overcome Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. All of these in 1989. Now, Kirk and Matson are, are, are writing at the height of the AIDS scare. And they're asking the question, how do we, people are turning against us because of AIDS. How do we present ourselves as an oppressed minority group? And the idea was, how do we get on the social justice bandwagon and make people pity us rather than fear us so that we can change the way they think about us? And they refer to it as a propaganda campaign. And there's three steps in this propaganda campaign. Desensitizing, jamming, and conversion. Desensitizing for them was basically tell stories of gays and gay people from a positive point of view. They even had sample ads in their book so that people get used to hearing about it and they're no longer offended by it. They use this phrase, you know, it's like we put straight people in a shower and we shower these stories of homosexuality so that, you know, wow. at least they just get used to being wet. Um, and so that's the first one, desensitizing. The second one is jamming. Jamming, what they're doing is, and by the way, these two professors were professors in uh, psychology and marketing. Um, and so in jamming, what they do is they want to cross the wires of people who oppose them. So you, you conflate or equate opposing homosexuality with being part of skinheads, KKK, or whatever, so that people are jammed, so that every time they think a thought that is anti-LGBTQAI, whatever, they get jammed and they have to stop themselves and qualify every statement, for example. The third step is conversion, not turning people into gays, but turning people into allies. That's why it's LGBTQIA+, lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, intersex. A is allies. A lot of people don't know that. Wow. A is allies. So we turn people into allies. By the way, in the social justice movement and in the racial justice movement, they talk about white people being what? Allies. Yeah. It's the same thing. And they're using desensitizing. What is desensitizing? Tell the story over and over again. Black men are being hunted down and killed by the police. There's no evidence of that. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary. Tell the story over and over again so that people assume that it's true, even though that it's not. With, with, with Kirk and Matson, it was one in 10, one in 10. One in 10 people are gay, right? Even though it's like 1.6% uh, of people who identify themselves as, as homosexuals, one in 10. Tell it over again, over again, and over again until people begin to believe it, even though it's patently false. Wow. So desensitizing. Next is jamming. And, and, and jamming is, is equating the idea of looking at answers within the black community as aversive racism. So people even feel guilty 
for pointing at things like out of wedlock birth rates and so on and so forth, right? That's the jamming. That that that's the jamming. Wow. And in desensitizing jamming, the last one is conversion. You convert people to allies, and the allies in this case are people who commit to the doing the work of anti-racism. All of this is from the class of '89, brother. Wow. All of this is coming from the same playbook. And they're using it. And so they have us second guessing ourselves. And every statement that we make dies the death of a thousand qualifications. Wow. So where do you think this is going? And then I know we, we've got a couple more questions and then we can wrap up. And, um, well, I'm working on a, I'm working on the book and the title of my book is Fault Lines. And a fault line is that place in the earth that that fissure where things when they shift, it creates an earthquake. Mm-hmm. And right now, this fault line is shifting. And there is, there is a great falling away that has already happened. Um, there are some people who are naive. They love the Lord. They love their brothers. And they're trying to express that love. And they're naive about where these terms are coming from and what they mean. There's another group of people. Um, and they're not naive. Um, they're they're actually deceived, right? Mm. Um, and, and they've imbibed this deception and they're operating within this deception. There's a third group of people and they're deceivers. They know exactly what they're doing and they're deceiving. Um, a lot of them for the sake of power because there's power to be had. If you're a black person right now, you, you, you're in power because everybody's literally bowing the knee to you organizations and companies are hunting for black people. The police are not hunting black people to kill, but organizations and fortune 500 companies are hunting for black people to elevate to the upper echelon in their company. And there's not enough qualified black people to be found for all these companies. So if you are a qualified black person today, you can write your own ticket. You can go wherever you want to go because you're a hot commodity, especially if you're a black female, right? Like Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris was rejected as a candidate, right? By the Democrats because they listened to her. She didn't even go to the to the, the California primary because she wasn't even gonna win in her own state. But Joe Biden so desperately needs a black female that boom, all of a sudden she's the flavor of the month again, right? Wow. There's power to be had. And so that, that's what some people are doing. There's also power for Robin D'Angelo as a white woman who is a white savior, who's speaking power to white people and coaching them on how to give away their power to black people. So there's power. There's some people who are in this because of the power that, that that's to be had. So we got to wake up and recognize what's happening. And and, and we've got to fight second Corinthians chapter 10, right? Um, You know, we're not battling uh, our our weapons are not carnal, right? Because we're not battling against the flesh. Um, Our, our, our weapons are powerful for destroying strongholds. So what do we do? We destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. And then secondly, we take every thought captive. So we got to destroy these arguments, right? We've got to destroy critical race theory. We've got to destroy critical theory, critical social justice. We've got to destroy it because it's an argument lifted up against the knowledge of God. And then secondly, we take every thought captive. So what that means is the reason I think this thing is attractive to Christians is because we do want justice. We do want reconciliation. We do want righteousness, right? We want these yeah. things. So what do we do? We take every one of these thoughts captive to obey Christ, and we think about and talk about these things biblically. So simultaneously, we're doing these two. That's what it means to fight a war. What do you do? You destroy and you take captives. That's yeah. what it means to fight a war. And, you know, so on the one hand, we have to continue to fight these things and recognize that they are enemies and adversaries, not the people. Those are our brothers. But we fight these arguments and we fight these lofty opinions and unapologetically so. And then secondly, we take every thought captive. So those things that people are being sucked in by, they want justice, they want equality, um, they they want uh, racial reconciliation, they want unity, they want these things. Those things are good things. Those things are biblical things. We take those thoughts captive. We look at the Bible and what the Bible says about them. And we give not just an an alternative narrative or a counter narrative, 
but we give a true narrative where we've been given a false narrative. And then we stop apologizing because you cannot, we, you, we can't, you know, I, I so tried, you know, every, the, the word is nuanced, right? Um, you have to be nuanced and you have to be helpful. And, and Vody, you know, I understand what you're saying, but you're just not nuanced. And you say it sometimes in ways that aren't helpful, right? We, mm-hmm. We're so Without concerned empathy. about, yeah, we're so concerned about things being helpful that we no longer care if they're truthful. And mm. I'm done with that. Mm, man. And that that's actually a question I have as, as, Someone in their 20s, we are informed a lot by like media and social media and like Twitter, Instagram. You're watching all these trends take place. There's like two worlds, I would say, but like in, within the church, it could be, it, it, you don't seem woke or you seem very invalidating and you don't seem loving if you right. try to rid this off as a gospel problem. Yep. So that's the problem I'm I'm like I'm dealing with of like I want to just bring everything back to the gospel problem in all of this. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's invalidating and that's not it, it's always like this. Yes, of course we know that, but that doesn't fix blank. So how would you encourage I, I hear you saying like keep going, keep having the uh, the, the discussion, but yeah. and, but but here's the other thing though. It, it, that's true of everything. And here's what's so ironic. I've been involved in politics for a long time. I've been involved in the pro-life movement for a long time. Some of the very people who've now jumped on the critical social justice bandwagon were saying that I was too political a decade ago, too involved in politics and, 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 and seeing that as a solution and not the gospel as a solution. Just a decade ago, this is what people were saying to me wow. when I was talking about this holistic approach and homeschooling, right, as part of this holistic approach, because we have to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Yes, they have to understand the gospel, but every aspect of their education and their training needs to be understood from a gospel perspective. I've come here to Zambia. Why? in order to help establish not just the university, but a university, a classical Christian, liberal arts, biblical worldview university, right? With a student labor program. So in a sense, we're like early Harvard. That's what Harvard was started at. But with the the Tuskegee Institute, you know, um, student labor mindset. So it's early Harvard meets Tuskegee Institute. Why? Because I absolutely believe that when the gospel transforms hearts, it also transforms hands. You see, I've been preaching this for decades, <laughs> that, that, that this is the full orb reformed understanding. This is why I've been talking about the difference between being a Calvinist and being reformed. Reformed is a full orb worldview. It's not just the tulip. It's not just about the way people get saved. It is about the way that you balance law and gospel, you see, and so, Yes, we believe these things. No, we don't believe that these things are simplistic. But the gospel is at the heart of it. When man's life is changed and impacted by the gospel, it absolutely impacts every aspect of his life, including the way he pursues the work of his hands. Hmm. So I, I find it quite comical that people are saying, well, you, you, you know, you're just being simplistic. Really? Because five years ago, you were saying I was being too political and applying the gospel too broadly when mm-hmm. I was talking about these very same issues. So again, that just doesn't hold water. Yeah. yeah. Hey, last last uh, question I have, Vody. Um, why do you think there's such a deficit of you? Because, and by that I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean... I, I'm I'm being 100. I've told I've told Todd before. I'm like, man, if ever there was a time we don't need Vody Bakum in Africa, mm-hmm. it's right now. And uh, and and yet, because again, there's mutual friends and and church leaders that you and I yeah. would have that are uh, of uh, yeah. different uh, shades of melanin, and they nobody's yeah. talking like you. And uh, and I think what you're saying well, you, is so. Well, you know, huge. there are man, there are there are thousands of prophets who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. They're being drowned out right now. But, you know, for one thing, there's a series of books coming That's out good. on this issue. You know, I'm expecting mine to, to be out, Lord willing, in, in April. But there's a number of books that are coming out and that have come out. 
Um, a guy named John Harris just wrote a book, uh, Social Justice Goes to Church. Um, you know, um, um, I'm thinking about, um, oh man, anyway, just completely drew a blank. But Founders, I was just part of a, a book that Founders, you know, put out by what standard um, and a number of other pieces, you know, that have come out and that are coming out right now uh, from this other perspective. And so there's about to be an avalanche. Yeah. Um, there, there's a response to this. And unfortunately, you know, you asked me about what was going to happen. There is going to be a falling away. There are people um, who are no longer preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. There are people who are gone. They are no longer orthodox. Mm-hmm. They have left the reservation. And people are not calling them out because right now um, to do so gets you branded as a racist. But eventually people are going to look at some of these people and say, you know what, you've gone too far. And some of these guys absolutely have. They are no longer preaching a Christian gospel. Um, Some people are going to be rescued um, and and come back and, and, uh, and others are, are, are going to be, you know, saved from not even, you know, going into that direction, but it's going to be ugly um, within churches, within families, um, within universities and seminaries and ministries, there are ministries, man, that are gone. Hmm. They are just they're they are just woke and they're gone. Um, and you know some some stalwarts that 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 used to be you know trustworthy ministries that are completely um, you know sold out to the critical social justice and uh, and sound exactly like Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X Kendi and everything else. And there's going to be a backlash. These wow. people are going to use, lose funding. There are going to be other ministries you know, that, 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 that raise up. Uh, my prayer is that some of them are rescued and that they come to repentance. Um, but, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's already ugly and it's going to get uglier. Yeah. 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 I would, I would just ask on behalf of our listeners, just like leaving with some wisdom and encouragement for like anyone who is white listening and anyone who is any other color listening, I, what would you, I think a lot of times right now, white people's intention is right now to, to shut up, listen and love. Yeah. Like that's what they're being yeah. told to do. And it's silencing yeah. them. And to speak up is you acting as the oppressor. And now it's time for you to sit in the chair of the oppressed. And um, if you say, well, man, I feel like I can't do anything because I'm white. And that's something I can't help and fix. They're like, well, welcome to what it's been like our entire life, our entire history. Like you, you're so... You're, you're sitting catch 22 constantly. So yeah. how would you, you cannot capitulate to the mob, right? You, you cannot, you have to stand up to bullies and this is a bully. It is a mob of bullies. And right now relationships are being tested. Mm-hmm. If you have people in your life who are black, who supposedly have been your friends all this time, and you can no longer speak honestly with them without them completely castigating you, they weren't really your friends. You mm. didn't really have Christian unity with them. And explicitly, and would so, you say it's loving to, it's it's not not loving to speak up, right? Love rejoices in the truth. Yeah, love does right. not rejoice in falsehood, but rejoices right. in the truth. Yeah. And so if somebody's speaking falsehood and you're allowing that falsehood to go forward, that's unloving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what would you say to, like I said, anyone that's any other ethnicity other than white listening as, as it's the same. Yeah, it's the same. Exactly. We've got to go to war with this. And, and in fact, you know, we're probably in a more crucial position for going to war with this because of the way the table has been set on mm-hmm. this thing. Um, because right now people are, you know, listening to our voices. And one of the things that happens is, you know, when I speak about these things and, you know, try to give people the, the background on this and history on this or whatever, and other people come and say, you know, well, what about that guy? And then people just say, well, internalized racism, uh, privilege, uh, catering to white people. Bro, I've been canceled. I have been absolutely hmm. canceled. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, the stories I could tell you, I have been canceled. Hmm. Like, period, full stop. Wow. It, it, I am considered a pariah. And Christian publishing, Christian publishers, the overwhelming majority of them do not want to touch anything 
that I want to publish. Um, you know, I'm not going to go too into that because there's one publisher um, who I'm working with, um, you know, Baker, who was courageous enough to work with me on some some other books and another publisher that's doing this book that I'm doing on on social justice. But beyond that, um, bro, I have been blacklisted. I have been canceled. Um, there, Which is the furthest thing from Christianity to, be, to yeah, begin. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There, there are stages that people just absolutely would not have me on to save their lives. Mm-hmm. I have been canceled. Okay. Oh, and so what, what's happening is people are going, wait a minute, you, you're saying that he's out of touch with blackness. Do you know where he's from? You're saying that he's, you know, promoting, you know, white supremacy, that he has a simplistic, just, I mean, none of that stuff is true. So what's happening is as people are canceling me and, and trying to belittle my voice, other people are looking at that and saying, ah, wait a minute, now, now you've gone too far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, 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 you know, people are just sort of proving where they stand and where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. When, when black people are able to preach on reparations and misuse and abuse biblical texts in order to preach for reparations, and nobody's calling them on their eisegesis, and in some cases, you know, you know pure heresy, but I'm called all kind of names because of the things that I'm saying about these issues of critical social justice, that tells you something, brother. That that tells you something. Yeah. And right now, the, the least loving thing that you can do to a brother is listen to them spout heresy and nonsense and not call them on it. Mm. That's right. That tells me you don't love a brother. Yeah. yeah. You and love right yourself. now, that's exactly, yeah. Right now, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, yeah it is. People right. are spouting heresy and nonsense and they're not being called on it because they're not being loved. Yeah, that's right. Man, dude, I feel like we could go for another another mm-hmm. hour and a half and, and just ping you with questions. But Bodhi, thank you, man, for for taking time, for making time. If you uh, are looking for resources, Vody, what's the best place for them? You got a book coming out in April. You should go pre-order that book if if it is available for pre-order right now. But not yet, not yet, but close. We're soon. Whenever it uh, is. Vodibacum.org. Vodibacum.org. Um, is 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 where you can just my name dot org or just 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 put Vody into any search engine. And <laughs> yeah, that's I'll right. Come, I'll come up if you can't spell my wholesome German name. <laughs> Malcolm, right? Um, yeah, it's it's so interesting to me. People are like, you know, I don't understand the struggle. I don't under. Why do you think I have a nice wholesome German name? Because I'm a descendant of slaves hmm. who worked on a German plantation in Texas, right? I mean, come on, man. It, it just, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. Crazy, um, man. But, but anyway, just, you know, yeah, votingbacham.org or, or acu-usa.com. That's our uh, uh, African Christian University's American website, acu-usa.com. If you want to learn more about what's happening at, at ACU and our work here in Zambia um, with the guy who so despises Black people that he left America to come to Africa to work with black people. Um, so anyway, um, it's hard to keep straight. You know. Honestly, you're yeah, like, wait a yeah, second. Yeah. Oh my gosh, man. Yeah. Well, Hey, next time, if you are in the States, we would love to have you at the ports. If we could make that happen. I mean, you're such a gift. Sounds I know, good, man. I know it's, it's so rare that you're over here, but, um, but I, uh, sounds we'll, good. We'll keep hanging. Yeah. In. I'm there three or four times a year, but you know, COVID canceled my last two trips. Um, and even COVID you know, canceled you back in January. Yeah, I'm scheduled to be back in January. No, bro, there's so many ministries, man, that I used to be a part of, used to even have leadership in, oh. um, who wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just absolutely, just forget about it, you know. Um, and and like I said, you know, finding publishers now. Um, That's crazy. There, yeah, that, the that... overwhelming majority of Christian publishers, the last, the, the, the last thing that we put out there um, you know, in terms of my agent, last thing my agent put out there, um, you know, in terms of uh, proposals, um, Christian publishing world was like, nah, fam, not him. That is nuts. Um, and they are yeah. foolish because, Vody, there are yeah. so many people. I hope, I, I know you hear it, 
But bro, people are so encouraged by your teaching, by your boldness, by your your courage on this issue that, uh, man, I think from even a a publishing financial perspective, I'm like, you you guys are fools because uh, wow. the uh, there's a lot of people that are looking to and are so encouraged, myself being one of them, by you on this issue. So, man, I hate that, but keep going and do God multiply your kind, bro. Hey, man, yeah, God is good, bro, and and um, I've really been I've really been encouraged. And let me just say one last thing. One of the reasons that I decided to do this book, um, there's several reasons, but one of them is you know living as an expat. Um, I live in Zambia. Um, police corruption is real. An expat, for people who don't know, means? An expatriate, someone from one country who's living in another country. Yep. So I'm an American expatriate. I'm an American living abroad and been living here for the last five years. Listen, the, the police here are not here to protect and serve. Hmm. If someone was to rob me right now, I couldn't call 911. If I needed the police, I'd have to go get them. And, and, and pay them something and wow. then drive them over here, you know, and then drive them over here and then pay them something for them to investigate crime or whatever. Mm. Um, and, and, and they exist to do checkpoints at the end and the beginning of every month. They have these checkpoints in different parts of the city where they check your tags or whatever, look you over to see what you've done wrong, pull you to the side of the road where they write you a ticket and you have to pay it in cash on the side of the road. Okay. Um, if you get caught stealing here, the police will beat you down. We were standing in a store once and watching this guy just get wailed on by the police. And we're like, what in the world? And the Zambians were just like, you know, whatever. And they just, oh, he's a thief. Wow. So, I mean, you, you steal something and you, you catch a beat down from the police. I say all that to say, Zambians are asking me about the corruption of American policing. Wow. It's a joke. They, they cannot believe when Africans go to America and have interactions with the police, they cannot believe how professional our police are. They cannot believe how courteous our police are. They cannot believe how not corrupt policing is and that police actually are held accountable for things. They cannot fathom it. But you've got people in African countries with the most corrupt policing imaginable who are believing the Black Lives Matter narratives and actually believe that the police are hunting down and killing black men. And when they hear the actual numbers, they scratch their heads and go, well, wait a minute, what are people talking about? Wow. And so living as an expat and having to see our country's name dragged through the mud, it, it, it was a bridge too far. Wow. I just, yeah, it was a bridge too far. Hmm. Man. Uh it's crazy, uh, uh, you know, not to rehash because we could just keep going, but it is, it is crazy and voices like that and going back to the gospel and preaching the gospel, going to God's word to be informed by it and not living in fear. And uh, man. Yeah. Listen, listen, man, this is the last thing I promise, the last thing. Come on. But first time I was here, um, I was preaching at this church called Evangel Baptist Church. The pastor's name was Grave Singogo. And Graves' father came and met me in the parking lot. And 87-year-old spry African man comes up to me, big old smile, and he greets me. And, you know, he, you know, and he asked me, had I been in Africa before? I said, no, this is my first time. He grabs my face, he kisses me, and he says, son, welcome home. And he hugs me, and I just lose it, right? Yeah. And I'm sitting in church, and everybody's singing, and I just begin to weep because as I'm sitting there, this thought dawns on me. Centuries ago, these people sold my ancestors into slavery. Mm -hmm. White people didn't come to Africa and go hunting for slaves. White people came to Africa and bought slaves from Africans who had already enslaved other Africans. Mm -hmm. And they sold them to white people and they sold them to Arabs. The Arab slave trade was 10 times more brutal than the European slave trade. So number one, I'm grateful that we weren't sold into the Arab slave trade. But these Africans sold my ancestors into slavery. My ancestors got on boats and they went across the water to America and they survived the Middle Passage, which was brutal. It was brutal, but still not as brutal as the Arab slave trade. And the Middle Passage going to the West, 80% survived, 20% died. Going to uh, the Middle East, 
uh, 80% died, 20% survived. Wow. And so it was by the grace of God that, that my ancestors in, ended up there. They end up in slavery. It is horrible. It's dehumanizing. It, it was unthinkable, but they survived slavery. When they survived slavery, they ended up being free. And they ended up being free in the most powerful nation in the history of the world. And because of that, I was born among the freest, most prosperous black people in the history of planet Earth. I got the best education and the best theological education that any black people have ever received in the history of planet Earth. And now God had put me on a plane, brought me back to Africa where I'd been sold from so that I could deposit there what God had put in me because what they went for evil, God meant for good. Come on. Come on, wow. dude. That, if you got any more, we'll take those too. So <laughs> that, that is, uh, is so true. And uh, in a, it's the right perspective of God is at work despite all the evil around us, despite all the, the sins of, of ancestors in the past and can redeem and what is intended for evil can be used for good. But um, man, that's, that's a great note to end on. Vodi, thank you for real for yeah, making time. Thank you. Bless you, brother. It's my pleasure. All right. That is it for us, guys. As always, if you have questions, I know there was a lot and a lot of big terms and, and really important um, conversation to have mm -hmm. and more uh, to have in the future. So hopefully that was encouraging. If you have questions, as always, email us at info at the porch live, and we will see you next time on another episode of Views from the Porch. We want to thank you for listening to Views from the Porch. For more information about The Porch Ministry, visit us at theporch.live or follow us on social media at The Porch.